Who do you think you are? Anyone ever asked you that before? If you've been asked that before with that tone, what you realize is that moment is they weren't asking about what your Ancestry.com report said. You see, to ask somebody, who do you think you are with that type of tone, here's what you're implying with that question. You have stepped outside the authority that you think you may have. Let me just tell you, you try that out with a police officer today, it will not go well with you or for you. Who do you think you are? Last week, we began this, this series called His Words and His Ways, walking through the Gospel of John to see what Jesus reveals about himself, what he says about his authority, by what he does, and by what he says. Today, I want to invite you to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The end of chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. As we continue this series and looking actually today at two of the signs that John records as an eyewitness to Jesus' public ministry. And we're going to see today not just the significance of these signs that Jesus does, but most importantly, we're going to see today what these signs reveal about Jesus and what he was revealing about himself. And I believe for some of us today, it's going to be an incredible encouragement for us today. It's going to be a great encouragement to remind us of, um, for us to be reminded today of who Jesus is. For some of us today, it's going to be incredibly challenging. Because for some of us, I believe in this moment, God's going to leverage this text today for you to have to do some real introspection to evaluate the nature of your faith. Do you have faith? What does that faith look like? And what are the implications of your life? And I'm just trusting that the Spirit of God is going to honor the preaching of his word, and my hope for you today is that you will say yes to whatever God is saying in your heart. So today I told you we're going to look at two different signs, the end of chapter 4 and then the beginning of chapter 5, and so I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to read chapter 4, verse 46 through 50, and then we'll skip ahead to chapter 5 and read verse 1 through 9. It says, Jesus went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. And Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed and what Jesus believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up. 
Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Jesus, I ask today that for our good and for your glory, you would give us a better picture, better understanding, better knowledge of who you are. And at the same time, in your grace towards us, you would allow us to have a better understanding and knowledge of who we are. God, in your grace, you would help us to understand that outside of the healing of our soul that is only found, Jesus, in your death, burial, and resurrection. That today we are in a place of desperation just like these two men we find in these moments. So God, would you just have your way in this time, Lord? That's our desire today is that you would accomplish what you desire accomplished for those that are in the room and those that are watching today. We give you this time. Would you use it for your glory in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today, we're actually going to look at these signs in somewhat of a unique way. We're going to see briefly a similarity between the two of them, and then we're going to look at the two differences that we find in them, again, because I think it goes back to what Jesus is wanting to reveal about himself in these two miracles. In February of 1980, in the context of heightened tension, of world politics between the United States and Russia, a group of the best U.S. college hockey players took on the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, they were more talented, more experienced, more physical. And in the semifinals of the Lake Placid Olympics, these collegiate uh, hockey players took on the best hockey team in the world. And it was an incredible upset as the U.S. was up 4-3 to three in the closing moments. And Al Michaels famously asked the question, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? And that question and, and, and notifying the, the miraculous moment that this was really set a trajectory of leveraging this word miracle when it comes to big moments in sports. It really was the unthinkable that the U.S. would win. But I would ask you today, was it really a miracle? I would say probably that depends on how you define a miracle, isn't it? Again, we've seen the continuation of this idea of miracles in sports. Some of you remember this day very well in November of 2002. LSU Tigers are trailing the Kentucky Wildcats. An LSU quarterback in the last seconds, as they're, as they're down, heaves his Hail Mary pass, which seemed providentially tipped by a Kentucky defensive back right into the hands of Devery Henderson who took it to the house. The Tigers won, and that day is known as the Bluegrass Miracle. One of my favorites is from January of 2018. Minnesota Vikings quarterback Case Keenum, with time winding down, throws a pass to Stephon Diggs on the sideline. Stephon Diggs catches it and desperately makes his way across the goal line to defeat a certain NFL team. Y'all remember that? <laughs> we all know that these memorable sports moments, right, are miracles, whether it's the miracle on ice, the bluegrass miracle, or the Minneapolis 
miracle. Now, I will acknowledge if the Cowboys ever win the Super Bowl again, it will be a legit miracle, all right? You don't have to tell me. Some of you can stop the text message right now that you're sending to me. I recognize that. <laughs> but what is a miracle? I mean, even today, we were singing for a miracle, asking God for a miracle. Again, I think our culture oftentimes waters down a lot of words, but I do think with the word miracle and watering down that word and its understanding, but Oxford Dictionary defines it as a miracle is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. The key phrase that they're pointing out there and what a miracle is is that it's not explicable by natural or scientific law. This means that a miracle is something that is in contrast of how the world works. So there are these things that we see in sporting events that we want to call a miracle, but I would say, no, they're just really, really, really unlikely. They don't go against natural or scientific law. You see, natural and scientific laws are realities about this world. They're not contingent on what you think, on what I think. They're not contingent on uh, uh, where we are in the world. They're not contingent on what society or government may propagate. They just are. And so for something to be explicable by nature or scientific law, or not explicable by natural or scientific law, a true miracle to take place, it means it must take place from something, or better yet, someone outside of our created world. That's why the definition that I just gave you at the very end, it said it is considered to be the work of a divine agency. So why is this so important for us to establish this? Well, because in the context of our time today, we're looking at two miracles. We're seeing two moments where Jesus is revealing his authority over natural and scientific law. It reveals Jesus as one over creation and over created order, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. One of my favorite passages in the scripture in Colossians chapter 1, speaking of the personhood of Jesus, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. <coughs> The firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. This is why Jesus can be in a boat in the midst of the storm and he can say, peace be still. That's why at that moment that the waves and the wind, they obey him. So we see this similarity here in these two signs of the healing of the royal official, of his son, and this paralytic who had been sitting by the pool of Bethesda, paralyzed for almost four decades. We see that Jesus has authority. He has authority over physical limitations, but as I said, there are similarities here, but there are also significant differences because of what Jesus specifically, and as John is echoing here in this gospel, is trying to reveal about the nature of Jesus. And so I want us to recognize the similarities today of Jesus healing um, this, this young child and this man and the significance of that work. In fact, at the end of our time today and our response time, I'm going to give an opportunity for some of you today that you're dealing with health issues in your life or maybe like the royal official, there's a relative or a friend in your life that needs a physical touch from God and we're going to take opportunity to pray for that today.
Today, I want us to focus in on the contrast that we see here and what Jesus is revealing about himself. So the first one I want us to see is from this first sign in chapter 4, and it's, it's this, that the authority of Jesus demands authentic faith. The authority of Jesus demands authentic faith. So if you look at verse 46, it says, He went again to Cana of Galilee. If you are with us last week, you know that we were in Cana of Galilee, weren't we? Well, there's a moment between here where he has actually gone to Jerusalem. He's gone through Samaria, and now he is back in Cana of Galilee. And it tells us that this royal official makes his way to Jesus because he has heard that Jesus has come back into Galilee. And what we're going to find, this is significant today, is that this is the, 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 the first recorded miracle of Jesus in which he is actually not going to be present for it to happen. All right, he's not going to be present for this miracle to take place. And that's significant for us today as we consider that the authority of Jesus demands authentic faith. We find this royal official who was probably attached to Herod's court. He rushes to Jesus on behalf of his dying son. And as he pleads with Jesus, Jesus is going to leverage this moment, like he often did in his public ministry, to not just address the man, but to address those that were there, right? If you look at the text, you see here in verse 48, it says, Jesus told him, so Jesus is directing this statement to the man, but I want you to notice here, it says, unless you people. Now, if you have a different translation, it may, yours just may say you, but the you is plural there. It's implying that he's not just speaking to the man, but he's speaking to those that have gathered back around him. And he says, unless you people see these signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, again, we're talking about signs, these seven signs that Jesus is going to do. But here, Jesus refers to signs and wonders. Only two times in the Gospel of John does he use this word wonders. And he's showing here that Jesus is making a point about the crowd. In a sense, this is a rebuke to them. And he's saying, listen, you are only here because of what I can do. Jesus knew the hearts of these people. And while it tells us just previous to this moment that they had welcomed him back to Galilee, what he was communicating here was that their welcome of him or their interest in him, it was flawed. They were interested in seeing the magic that he could perform. They were drawn to the sensational side of Jesus. They believed that Jesus could do something miracle, a miracle or do something special, but that belief was not a deep, trustful attachment as one commentator says, is the essence of faith. So I want you to catch that today. They were drawn. There was, there was a belief that this Jesus could do wonders. He could do something different than all the other rabbis. But Jesus recognized there was not an authentic faith, a deep attachment, which is the essence of faith. But I want you to grasp the faith of this man. Some of you in here, you've read this before, you may have even heard a sermon on it before, but, but I want you to consider today the faith of this man and, and maybe how you would handle it if you would have found yourself in his spot. Look at me in verse 49 and 50. Sir, the official said to him, come down before me. He says, go. Your son will live. Now don't miss this. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. 
And here's the persistence of this man. He's already addressed Jesus, asking him to come down. This is literally from Cana to Capernaum, Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And so he literally would have had to walk down to Capernaum, come down. Jesus makes this address to the crowd, and he comes right back at Jesus. Jesus, would you come? My boy is about to die. And Jesus informs him that his son will live. And here's where we see this picture of faith. Notice what it says here in verse 50. The man believed what Jesus said to him, and he departed. He walked away. Now again, at this point, Jesus has not done a miracle that Jesus isn't present for. And I'm convinced that for this man, he is, he's believing as he's making his way to Cana, knowing that Jesus is there, that, gosh, I've got to go get this man, and I somehow have to convince him that he's got to take a 17-mile walk from Cana down to Capernaum because this is my only hope. So here he is planning and thinking about what's he going to say and what are the chances that he can actually get Jesus to leave Cana to go to Capernaum. And Jesus says, listen, go. Your son will live. And he departs. Can you imagine? Have you ever considered before what that walk home must have been like? He believed, and then he begins to make this journey. What was the internal dialogue like? Did he have moments that he was questioning God? I shouldn't have left. I should have brought him with me. I'm going to get home, and my son's not going to be better, possibly. And then all the servants are going to say, well, where's Jesus at? Well, he was there, and I talked to him. Well, why didn't you bring him back? Well, he told me that he was healed. Well, why didn't you bring him? He needed to be, right? You just think about all that could have unfolded in this walk back. And it says here that he believed and he departed. It was a step of faith to turn and go home. Some of you today, you need to consider this question. Did you know that sometimes walking away can be a step of faith? Sometimes in life, walking away can be a step of faith. Why is this significant? Because I think it's showing us authentic faith here. Let me illustrate that for you. The beginning of John chapter 4, we see Jesus with the woman of the well. Many of you remember that, right? Where he offers her living water, and she understands that Jesus is the Messiah. And it tells us that she went and she began to tell people in this town of Sychar about Jesus. And look with me in John 4, 39 through 42. And here's what I want you to understand. Again, the Samaritans, those were the group of people. They were half-breeds, if you will, uh, uh, Jewish people. And, 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 and Jews, the Jews, they looked down on the Samaritans. Right? This is one of the significant things about Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is that he made the person that the Jews looked down upon to be the hero of the story. But look at what happens in Samaria. Look at the faith of those that are in Samaria in Verse 39 through 42, it says, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Now listen to this. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this really is the Savior of the world. What do we see from the Samaritans? They believe not because of the sensation. They believe because we've heard you, and we believe that you are the Savior of the world. 
And so as John records this time in Samaria and the belief of the, Jew, uh, of the Samaritan people, he comes back to Galilee to his people and they welcome him, they gather around him, they want to see the sensation. Jesus is showing us something about authentic faith. It's taking Jesus for who he has revealed himself to be and not just relying on believing when it's beneficial. Let me say that again because for some of you, I, I feel like we need to unpack or undo some understandings about what your faith relationship looks like with the Lord. What Jesus is revealing in this miracle about himself is that as one who has authority, as one who is over and above outside created order, created things, that he demands authentic faith. And authentic faith is taking Jesus for who he has revealed himself to be, not just relying on believing when it's beneficial. We see a picture of that in John chapter 20. Remember, John chapter 20 is where we see doubting Thomas. Right, one of the disciples, and Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And the disciples, they had seen him, but Thomas wasn't there. And he said, I'll believe it when I see it, right? And look with me in, in John 20. It'll be on the screen in John 20, 27 through 29. Jesus does show up. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now listen to what he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. There's a distinction that Jesus is making here about a faith for when it is beneficial to me and a faith that is authentic, a faith that is believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so the official departs. He hasn't seen his son get better, has he? And I think here, this is the echo of Jesus. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And here's this father who is now walking away from Jesus, going home with an authentic faith, believing that his son can be healed, even though he hasn't seen it. He's taking Jesus at his word. But I want you to notice this in verse 53. This is interesting to me. Look in verse 53. Well, just in, in, in 51, we see he's making his way home, and I think this is a grace gift from the Lord that on his way home, as he's having this inner dialogue, his servants show up and say, your son is healed. I don't know at what point in the 17 miles that, that they, they stopped him, but what a grace gift from the Lord that the back half of that trip, he was going rejoicing, knowing that his faith, his faith had been honored and that his son truly had lived. But but we see here in verse 53, the father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now catch this. What does it say in verse 50? When Jesus said, your son will live, what, did, what does it say about the man? He believed. Well, how come in verse 53 it says that he believed? Did he not really believe in verse 50? What's the difference here? Here's what I think it is. I think it's a progression of faith. I think in verse 50, he believed that Jesus could heal his son even if Jesus wasn't there. But in verse 53, he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And it says that his whole household believed. 
there was a progression of faith there. And for some of us, we need to take that progression of faith. Because the reality is, your faith, right now, your faith in Jesus is a faith that shows up when it's beneficial or when it's needed. Right? When you get that diagnosis or that friend or family member gets that diagnosis, you do believe that, that God can heal them. Like you believe that. And you pray and you ask others to pray and you put things on social media believing that God can heal them. And that's good and that's right. But I believe what Jesus is revealing here in this sign is that the faith that he is looking for is not just that we turn to him when we need healing and believe that he can. But for you and I, our faith impacts every facet of our life. That I express faith in my life by taking up my cross and following him. I express faith in my life in the nature of how I treat my spouse, that I love her as Christ loved the church. I express faith about how I care for those in our community and how I love others as, even as I love myself. That authentic faith that Jesus is looking for is not just to turn to him in a time of need and say, God, I believe that you can heal. But the authentic faith that Jesus demands is a faith that says, Jesus, you are the Son of God, and that my life is completely in your hands, and that you, as the Lord over all things, includes my life and my heart, and therefore my life is in your hands, and my life day in, day out is now going to be dictated by the reality that Jesus is Lord. And for some of us today, your understanding of your relationship with God is that you're good. And the reason that you're good is because, well, you know, when desperate moments come, I believe that God can heal or I believe that God can step into a situation. Again, that is a right belief, but it is an insufficient belief when it comes to his demand for authentic belief that says, listen, I'm going to believe to the ends that my life is in his hands. I give it all to him. My prayer today is that for some of us, we would consider the reality of what our faith relationship looks like with the Lord. Do I believe just when it's beneficial? Or is there an authentic faith that takes Jesus at his word, surrenders my life to his lordship, and gives him the throne of my heart? Let's look at the second one here quickly. The authority of Jesus demands authentic faith. Secondly, the authority of Jesus demonstrates his divine identity. Demonstrates his divine identity. This third sign in chapter 5 begins a new section of the Gospel of John. Some call it the the cycle of feasts, as we're going to see these moments are going to happen revolving all around these feasts in verse 5, or I'm sorry, in chapter 5 through the next couple of chapters. And we find that to be the case here in verse 1, that the Jewish festival took place, right? So Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And in verse 1, it tells us again that he's gone back and he makes his way to the pool of Bethesda. This is in the northeast part of uh, the city. In fact, today, even today, for those that are going with us to Israel in the end of February, uh, we we will be there and and, and we can see the pool of Bethesda, the the remains of the pool of Bethesda. It was two large pools and there were pools or cobbles. A, a, a dam in the middle to separate the two and where there was a colonnade there. So you have, you have one, two, three, four, and one in the middle. You have five colonnades. And it tells us here that people would gather around the pool. Now I want to blow your minds for a second, all right? Some of you have already caught this. Look with me at John chapter 5, verse 4. 
Some of you are really confused right now because you don't have a Bible in front of you. Some of you are really confused because you do have a Bible in front of you. For some of you, as you're looking in your Bible, there's not a verse 4, is there? Yeah, some of you just started listening, didn't you? What we find in John chapter 5, verse 4, is a description of why this man is sitting at the pool. And it's believed that as the New Testament was being translated, that at some point a scribe, one of the scribes, out in the margin, had made a note of, to give some context for the reader of what was happening. And over time, that, that, that writing in the margin got added into the text. But as time has gone on, and we have revealed manuscripts from earlier and earlier times, what we have found is that was not in the original writing. And so translators like the CSB that I use, they, they remove it and say that was not a part of the original text but we understand the context of what was happening by the response of the man. So these people would gather around the pool. They believed that if verse 4 is in your Bible, you see that an angel would stir the water and the first one to get in, the first one to get in would be healed. So Jesus asked the man, we see it here in verse 6, do you want to get well? What a question for a man who for 38 years no telling how long he's been sitting there by that pool. But we see and helps understand the context and how he responds. Verse 7, sir, I have, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. He's saying, I, I'd love to be healed. But the problem is when this water gets stirred, as they believe, this angel stirring the water, I can't get down. And when I do start to go, somebody beats me. What we recognize is, the, I think, the hopelessness of this man. He's hopeless because of his experience, and he's ignorant of the one who is standing up his mat and started to walk. And at the command of the Creator, for God's providential purpose, the disabled man was changed. Now, I want you to catch the contrast here. In chapter 4, the sign in chapter 4, we see a response of faith, don't we? In chapter 5, this has nothing to do about faith. We don't see one ounce of faith of this man. I believe this is about the providential purpose of God, of Christ, and what he's doing to reveal himself. Why is that? Well, look with me at the end of verse 9 here. <coughs> told him, pick up your mat and walk. Why is he telling him to pick up his mat? Two reasons. Number one, he ain't going to need it anymore, is he? Some of you in here, you're thankful that your past is in the past. Jesus changed you and you haven't had to go back. But it was more than that. Because at the end of verse 9, it tells us, now that day was the Sabbath. Now that day was the Sabbath. If you're not familiar with the Bible, we understand the Sabbath to be from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. We look at creation, we see that on the seventh day God rested, and so God had established a Sabbath day for his people for two reasons, I believe. Number one, for an opportunity for faith while everyone else was working seven days a week they would work six and they would trust God for the seventh but also it was a gift of rest to the people as they observed it 
right? It was a step of faith, and it was a gift of rest. And over time, Jewish leaders, in their right motive to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy, they developed these laws to ensure that the Sabbath wasn't broken. And for many of the leaders, the Sabbath had no longer been about a step of faith and a gift of rest, but it had been about following these strict rules. And so one of those rules that they had established was you cannot carry a mat on the Sabbath. Why? Because that constituted work. You were working on the Sabbath, thereby you were disobeying God. And so what we find is that these leaders, for time's sake, we're not going to read through it, but these leaders, they go to the man and they say, listen, why are you carrying your mat? You're doing work on the Sabbath, but they don't stop with that man. They go to Jesus. Look at me, skip down to verse 16 through 18. It says, therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to them, my father is still working, and I'm working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Don't miss this. Making himself equal to God. In response to this criticism of these Jewish leaders, here's what Jesus says. You know what? We rest on the Sabbath, but God doesn't stop on the Sabbath. God is still working on the Sabbath. And if God is working on the Sabbath, why wouldn't I be working on the Sabbath? And we understand what Jesus was implying when he said this because we see the Jewish leaders understood what Jesus was saying when he said this. Right? This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. They knew exactly what Jesus had done. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why was Jesus doing this sign? In chapter 4, he was doing it to paint a picture of what authentic faith looks like. The sign that he was doing here was to make it crystal clear to those Jewish leaders and to make it crystal clear to us today, his divine identity. The authority of Jesus demonstrates his divine identity. And so oftentimes when we think about healing and praying for healing, you'll hear many preachers say, if you just have enough faith, you just have enough faith, and it goes to the amount of faith, and somehow if you can have enough faith, you can use it as a lasso to get God to do what you want him to do. Too often we spend too much time talking about the amount of faith, and we don't talk about the object of our faith. And so we can talk here about authentic faith, but we've got to be crystal clear that it's not just about an authentic faith. It has to be a faith in the right direction. And Jesus is making it crystal clear in this sign. I am God. And so we see in John chapter 1 where these leaders are intrigued by this guy named John the Baptist. He smells bad. He has a terrible diet, and he's out preaching repentance, and there's disciples that are following him. And they ask him, in John 1, you can read it, they ask him, are you the Messiah? And he very clearly says, I am not the Messiah. But don't miss this. In John chapter 5, Jesus was saying clearly, and these Jewish leaders understood him clearly, I am the Messiah. 
And so John's gospel is written so that you would believe. That you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And in these two signs, we see helping define what belief looks like. It's an authentic faith in who Jesus is, not just what he can do for me when it's convenient. That's what belief looks like. And John here, in showing, Jesus showing us what authentic faith is to believe, he is also showing us when he says to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's saying, listen, we believe it because Jesus was it. And so we ask the question today, who do you think you are? But the question that Jesus would have for you today is this. Who do you say that I am? You may remember from Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is there with his disciples around. He says, what are people saying about me? He said, some Elijah, other well-known people of the Old Testament. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And here's what I love, right? The Gospel of John, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Here's what Peter says. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Almost the exact phrase that John is going to take here for the purpose of writing of the gospel. The important question today is not who do you think you are. The important question today is who do you say that I am? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God that has authority over all things? And in the face of humanity's rebellion against him in our sin nature and in our sinful works, do you believe that Jesus as the Son of God was the rightful sacrifice for sin? That he would demonstrate his love towards you and that while you were still a sinner, that the Messiah, the Son of God, would come with the authority and all the authority that he had, that he would lay that down. Remember what he said, nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down on my own accord. That as the Messiah, the Son of God, he would lay his life down. Why? So that you could express faith, the object of your faith and the personhood and the divine nature of Jesus. That the object of your faith would be in the right direction. And that the demand for us is that that faith would be an authentic faith that isn't just about what Jesus can do for me when it's convenient, but it is about who he is and that it dictates every facet of my life. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me this morning. In just a moment, Casey and some of our team are going to come and lead us in a response song of worship. And we want to be available to you today. I told you at the beginning of our time that we're going to have opportunity, and, and this is going to be the opportunity for you. If you've, got a, if you've got a physical need in your life that you'd love prayer for today, we'd love to take this moment and to pray for you by faith, trusting that Jesus can, the great physician, can touch your body and make you well. Maybe today, like the royal official, there's someone in your life that needs physical healing. Man, it would be a huge honor for us to join you in prayer, to go before the Father on a family member or a friend's behalf. That's, that's what this time is going to be for. But more than that, more than that today, 
And as important and as serious as those matters are, I would say more importantly than that, for some of you today, you need to experience the miracle of a changed heart and a changed life. Today, you need to recognize what Jesus knew about himself, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And maybe for some of you, as you've done that introspection on your life, you've recognized that your faith has always just been a faith of convenience. And today, Jesus is calling you to a faith of surrender, to believe on him that you may have life in his name. So I'm going to pray for us. When I say amen, we're going to stand up all across this room. And down here, down front with me, we're going to have uh, some men, some ladies that are down here that are available to you to pray for you, to listen to you, to serve you, and whatever your response is today. If you're in the balcony, you don't have to come down here. We'll have some in the landing up there. We just want to be available for you to respond however God is leading you to respond. Some it's prayer. For some today, you're ready to put your faith in Jesus. Now it's going to be the time for you to do that. If you're here today and you don't know how to respond, you can spend this time praying for those that are here today. For those that don't know Jesus, that today would be the moment for them that they say yes to you. And so I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, and you step out and you come. The people will not mind to step out of the way for you to come forward if you need to come forward today. Father, today, Thank you that you love the Son, that you sent the Son. And Jesus, we're grateful that you came to do the will of the Father. And that you laid your life down for us. So today we recognize, Jesus, that you are the Son of the living God. You are the firstborn over all, over all creation. That all things were created by you and through you and for you. And by you, you sustain all things. And today, Spirit of God, we feel the call to faith, Lord. We, we cry out today, all of us today, cry out, God. We believe, but help our unbelief, God. We want to walk in even more faith. Not trusting in the amount of our faith, but trusting in the object of our faith. God, for those that are going to come forward to prayer for healing today, Lord, I, I just want to join them corporately in this moment, in, in that prayer, God, that you, would, that you would see their faith, that you would hear the cry of their heart. And Lord, we're going to pray believing in faith that you can do what natural and scientific law cannot do. So Father, help us to respond in faith as you're calling us to now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you?